if you want to be front run, you can go to Citadel right now. They will front run you every day, you know, and they will sandwich you. So um, L2s give you the exact same experience. The sequencer will, will cause the MEV to be awarded to a set of actors that are beyond your control. And it's not the, the Ethereum thing underneath is just a sideshow. You are really beholden to whichever L2 that you are, uh, that you are actually using. And that, that fraction, uh, fractionalization, that division of capital, that division of liquidity is, uh, is not a good long-term vision for any chain. All right, everyone, welcome back to Empire. We've got Santi and uh, myself hosting today, and we are really lucky to be joined by John Wu, president of Avalabs, and Emin uh, Gun, Goon, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Goon, Emin, but it's all good. Goon, all right. Uh, the co-founder uh, or founder and CEO of uh, Avalabs here. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thank you very much you. for having us. Yeah, yeah, really excited about this. All right, so here's kind of what I'm thinking for this episode. We can, we can take this in a lot of directions. I think it'd be really helpful to outline the thesis. Like what is the core thesis that you guys set out to accomplish when you set out to build Avalabs? Then I think I want to get into like, all right, we're sitting here January, 2023. I think the consensus kind of trade right now, the consensus is, is Ethereum. And I'd love, and there's some other narratives kind of going on, which is Cosmos, like some other L1s, some L2s. And I want to see where you guys Kind of see yourself fitting into that then we can get into some of the things you've built john you've been pretty influential leading partnerships with folks like kkr um emin uh, i know there's a lot of stuff on the technical side that's really interesting but i think it'd be helpful let's just start very high level can one of you outline the core thesis for what you're building sure so uh, when we started out i think it was very very clear to us that blockchains were on the verge of being able to support uh, the, uh, the digitization of all of the world's assets. That's the central goal that we built Avalanche for from day one. And it was very clear to us that there was going to be absolutely no chain in existence, no single chain that could conquer this. So from the ground up, we built a system that is, uh, that has an architecture that allows anybody to create their own chains within the, the, uh, the framework provided by the underlying system with their own rules, with their own virtual machines. So Avalanche is a multi-virtual machine, multi-validator set, uh, kind of, uh, kind of an infrastructure for those of you who are tech savvy. If you're not tech savvy, what this means is the number of transactions per second, the capacity of the system is infinite. The finality is the fastest of any chain that is truly decentralized. So this is uh, the system uses a consensus protocol that's unique and uh, is the fastest of its kind. And so it finalizes transactions in about uh, in about the blink of an eye, in about one second. And uh, and it's flexible. And one of the most interesting things about this flexibility is it can allow for compliant issuance of coins, compliant digitization of coins. And once again, the goal was to take the seven hundred trillion. Uh, worth of assets out there and provide the right infrastructure, both technically, legally, uh, from a compliance perspective, from every perspective you could imagine that could absorb that growth that was going to come towards uh, blockchains. So that was our mission. And it differs very much from systems like Ethereum, which are a single chain system, from systems like Bitcoin, which are a single asset system. So this is a chain built from the ground up for supporting a multitude of very different kinds of assets. Jason, when we knew each other from a while back, even before um, Ava Labs, um, you know, I was uh, running that team that was trying to tokenize private securities. And while doing that, even though it was mechanically possible, regulatory uh, wise, we had the right licenses, 
the technology back then, it was just really Ethereum wasn't there. And I was super excited to see, uh, you know, Gunn and his team actually have the best technology that was there. It, it could really scale. It can really tokenize the world's assets. And that's where we're headed towards. So I think you guys nailed the early thesis, which was that to, which is that like these monolithic blockchains weren't going to be able to handle the world's compute as the world's compute moved onto a blockchain. I think you nailed that thesis, but so did some other folks I'd say, right? And people approached this, um, this problem from different angles. So like the Ethereum crowd, I would say, approached this from by building L2s, like the optimisms and arbitrums of the world. Uh, the folks at Cosmos are working on like the app chain thesis, right? Where they build these different zones. What you guys have done is, so you've got like the C chain where some this tell me if my understanding of this is wrong but like c chain kind of settles the smart contracts you've got the x chain for like asset swaps and then you've got the p chain for metadata then every uh application whether it's like a game or an nft thing can uh can go build their own zone within these subnets or excuse me can go build their own subnet so maybe can you explain like why you think the subnet strategy is the right strategy here sure so um in a nutshell the reason why the subnet strategy makes sense is that uh, the subnets provide a uniform architecture for everybody to plug into and to cooperate well together. So think about your L2s. Think about any other discombobulated design where someone says, I'll give you just the base, you do whatever you like on top. What's going to happen in those cases, I've been saying this for a while now and we're seeing exactly this play out. First of all, the technologies that those that direction that vision is yielding are not decentralized. People end up building highly centralized L2s those highly centralized L2s are no better. They do not carry over any of the, the, the inherent properties of the layer one underneath. They're not censorship proof, for example. And they award all MEV to a single actor. They end up essentially recreating the traditional world that we have uh, with people front running, etc., in the blockchain system. In contrast, when you go to subnets, you have a uniform architecture. Yes, anybody can create their subnet and all of those subnets are uh, they provide the same API. So when it's time to interact with a subnet in, in uh, on Avalanche, it's very similar to uh, uh, to interacting with any other subnet. Whereas with layer twos, every layer two is unique and different. So uh, that uniformity is key to adoption and key to interoperability. And we also provide uh, the uh, the warp solution for messaging between subnets. So uh, you don't have to have everything replicated on a subnet. You can do your unique things on your subnet and rely on the services of an existing network, an existing chain, when it's time to do swaps, when it's time to connect to the real world, when it's time to connect to to, uh, to exchanges and so forth. So that's at a, at a very high level. The biggest difference, that is, we provide a unified architecture for people to do any any kind of a flexible thing they want, but regardless, maintain the same APIs, the same interfaces for applications. It's a technical advantage that Gunn and the team have built that's really eloquent, I would say. Um, from a business perspective, the developers and the uh, application developers that have come to us, they love it because it's actually a blockchain. I mean, every blockchain should do like probably four things. It needs to execute, it needs to settle, it needs to have a consensus registry, and it needs to have data availability. When you're dealing with the L2s, they don't do all of that. A subnet, you get all of that. And that's very attractive to a lot of business partners. Maybe touching on that point, John, would love to understand the early track, the, the, I guess, the traction that you've been getting. What are the type of 
Like, are you seeing a lot of developers that have been building on Ethereum or other chains migrate over to Avalanche or these new developers that are coming from traditional tech companies that are interested in building? And then touching a little bit on the on the on the use cases that are you that you're seeing emerge um, that are getting most traction in, in Avalanche. So the first answer is both. Um, and, you know, people have realized you can't batch all the stuff into one blockchain. Um, and that's the beauty of the subnets. It allows developers to have their own execution environment. Um, from the traditional world, a lot of the, uh, call it financial partners we have, they want compliance, they want regulatory oversight, and they need a certain environment that's different from the many gaming environment that have high throughput, and they care about different things. There are, there are different execution environments. So they get that flexibility that Gun talked about earlier and creating the type of subnet they have. Now, we just started rolling out the subnets in the back half of the fourth quarter. There is about six or so live on the mainnet, and there's about a hundred that's in the pipeline for this year. So it's a super exciting year for subnets. I guess uh, really curious if you could expand more on, on when you say kind of regulatorily compliant. As we all know, regulation is becoming more of a central theme and, and going to become more important. What is the what are the key properties that make you more regulatorily compliant that would make someone like a KKR or a Deloitte want to build on Avalanche versus go and build on Ethereum? I'll give you a simple answer, but in reality, it's not a simple thing. It's very complicated. It depends on the asset, depends on the type of players involved, depends on the uh, jurisdiction, whether it's U.S. or overseas. So there's so many different configurations, and this is what's important about the subnet. When you want to roll something out for a payment purpose or you want to roll something out for a security or an asset that you're tokenizing, you have different requirements. And it's not that as simple as just doing KYC, AML, at the smart contract level. We allow them to choose the validators at the network layer and the validator level. So they are more comfortable with the other players that are in this system. So it allows them more freely to do things. Is, is that just the 2023 version of what we saw in 2017 with like enterprise blockchains, these like private blockchains or, or permissioned well, blockchains, I guess you wanna say? That's different because those are private, private, private blockchains. Here, one of the great things that, frankly, a KKR or one of these large asset managers like is that at some point when they're ready, it can have an easy gate opening, so to speak, or an API into the rest of the permissionless world. That flexibility is what they really like. Hmm. Guys, can I, I actually want to go back to something that Evan was saying. So this original thesis, um, well, I, get, I get what you're saying that uh, like L2s are not composable, like something built on Ar Arbitrum cannot talk to something built on Optimism too easily. But if you look at, again, like I think that the app chain is kind of coming into is like really in the narrative right now. I think a lot of folks are going building on Cosmos because of that reason. Is that kind of where you took this thesis from or is that where like what, what Cosmos has done with interoperability between the zones? Is that what you're talking about when you mean like composability between networks? You could say that what Cosmos is doing is very similar to what we're doing. There are some huge technical differences, uh, but Avalanche was in the making when Cosmos was in the making. So I don't think anybody copied from anybody else. I think uh, what you're really seeing at a high, high level is that there was the, sort of the, the blockchain version one with Bitcoin, single asset, single chain. Then there was blockchain version two with Ethereum, which is uh, multiple assets, a flexible infrastructure, but still a single chain. And now you're beginning to see 
about three chains, which is um, Avalanche, Cosmos, and Polkadot. They're about uh, all about being able to support multiple ways of building chains. And they have technically very different architectures and they face very different limitations as a result. But we are the most flexible of these uh, of this version three of blockchains, the latest, greatest uh, wave of blockchains. Jason, it's, it's like this. When it's when this cross-chain interoperability is fully capable, right now, warp messaging is beginning, as, uh, as Gunn said. Um, a lot of these chains, whether it's a gaming app or whatever, uh, in the subnets, they will ultimately have access to the large DeFi ecosystem of Avalanche. That's not possible, uh, 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 just an app-specific chain like Cosmos. Hmm. Um, you, you, so one of the big differences between you, you guys and maybe someone like Cosmos or, or, or Solana or a lot of the other L1s that have kind of these like alt L1s is that you actually chose EVM. Um, you you ch chose to build on EVM instead of a lot of folks. Do you, looking back, do you think this was the right decision, the wrong decision, some pros, some cons? What, what Would you do this that again? Was, I would say, yeah, no, I would say that that was absolutely the right decision and we nailed it. We were one of the very first uh, people to go out there and say enough of these, you know, essentially uh, just modestly mutated new chains, new virtual machines. We already have a virtual machine that's been vetted. It's the EVM. We already have an ecosystem and that ecosystem is hampered by lack of scalability uh, in the infrastructures that are supporting it. Namely, Ethereum, especially at the time, was incredibly limited. It was based on proof of work and the proof of stake switch. It wasn't clear when it was going to happen. And if it were to happen, it wasn't clear what kind of capacity it was going to bring. And it did happen now, but the capacity that, you know, it did not bring much capacity to, uh, to Ethereum, nor did it bring finality. Finality times actually increased. So, um, so we saw this and we thought, okay, there's an opening here. Uh, these, uh, the EVM is great for the API developers. People know how to audit things built for the EPM. They know how to audit Solidity code. They understand everything about EVM bytecode. So that's why we picked the EVM and we've been helping the EVM ecosystem grow uh, by providing a new infrastructure that's far more scalable than Ethereum itself. Hmm. Where, where do you see the role of Avalanche in like, I think there are two things that are going to be big trends in 2023. It's L2s are going to continue developing and then you've got these like ZK EVMs. So I guess, um, like, I think demand for block space seems to be getting filled by right now, at least like new tech on ETH. So I'm curious, like why, if I'm a developer building something new, like why would I choose to build on Avalanche versus the, you've got the liquidity, the security, also like the brand name of ETH and, and their L2s. What is that? What is that argument? So there are lots of different ways to, uh, to, to look at this uh, from different perspectives. If you are in this game because you believe in decentralization, then it's a no brainer that the Avalanche system provides you the most decentralized, the most censorship-proof, the most free, the most open infrastructure. When you look at the L2 vision, each and every one of those L2s today is a hope and a dream that's being sold to the masses. None of them are decentralized. There's always a centralized entity. The sequencer is centralized. There are some centralized entities in the execution engine in the background. These things stop. And, uh, and at the end of the day, they are no better than what we start out with. If you want to be front run, you can go to Citadel right now. They will front run you every day, you know, and they will sandwich you. So um, L2s give you the exact same experience. The sequencer will, will cause the MEV to be awarded 
to a set of actors that are beyond your control. And it's not the, the Ethereum thing underneath is just a sideshow. You are really beholden to whichever L2 that you are, uh, that you are actually using. And that, that fraction, uh, fractionalization, that division of capital, that division of liquidity is, uh, is not a good long-term vision for any chain. What you're going to end up seeing in, on that front is you're going to see again centralization around, uh, you know, whatever dominant uh, paradigm is, 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 you know, people are talking about and people will hop from one to the other, but the problems will move with them because not a single person here is actually addressing the issue. There is a punting of the issue from L1 to L2s. L2s themselves don't know what to do. They're single chains, each and every one of them themselves. And people all want to be on the same big connected thing. And you will see that uh, as they move from one to the other, they will carry their problems with them. Avalanche is different in the sense that it offers quick finality that none of these L2s offer. It offers decentralization and lack of any single entity in control. It does not award MEV to any single actor. And it provides a user-built, user-structured, uh, user-defined, uh, incredibly flexible environment for people to do whatever they want on. And so I think that winning combination, a combination is quite a winning one because there's nothing like it in the L2 world. And I will say this. There's a huge, I think you guys as technical people, you should actually do, um, you, you should be one of the main people to remind everyone that the L2 vision and the L2 reality are miles apart, miles apart, that this is a game, this has become a game of, of as you well know, L1 founders constantly holding a carrot in front of a big, big mass, a mass of people who demand certain properties but never delivering that carrot. There's like no shortage of L1s, as you know, where there's going to be a new paper, a new system, a new release that will bring us that coveted feature of decentralization or high TPS or what have you. And the same is true for L2s. Look at all these L2s. They're all hopes and dreams. Not a single one is untrusted. You have to trust the L2 operators. And it's just, there's, I think, one experimental L2 that somebody once constructed and then discarded that nobody is using that has some lack of trust in it. But if I, I, I have yet to see any implementation of fraud proofs. So those visions are just words. And like, you know, like, like many others in the system, there are people who just constantly provide you a dream where the, 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 the actual reality falls far behind. And we saw this with many other technologies. Right. We saw it with VRFs, VDFs, accumulators. They were all supposed to be the solution to our scalability needs. Now it's L2s. Well, where are the VRFs, VDFs and RCAs? They all got discarded. They weren't feasible. And I don't know that any of these things that are being touted as, oh, this is going to solve all these problems are actually demonstrated to solve anything whatsoever. So, yes, there's a bunch of people who think, oh, yeah, this could potentially work someday. Well, great. That day is not today. And if you want something that works, and if you want something that's decentralized, that is in the main crypto ethos, then that's Avalanche. If you want something centralized, you want to award MEV to a bunch of your friends, then you could pick an L2 with a bunch of friends in it. We're used to, uh, I take your point around the L2s and the sequencer not being decentralized. I mean, some teams, I mean, not all L2s, L2s are, are created equal. You know, I think there are nuances and, you know, we don't have the folks of Arbitrum or Optimism or... You know, if you want to consider Polygon in that discussion as well uh, to, to push back on it. But I'll ask you just more of a general question. You know, in blockchains, when we you always are skeptical when you can achieve all three components. Right. There, there is a trade off of and you can correct me here, but there's this trilemma that we talk about in crypto, which is, you know, you are there's between security 
scalability. And what's the last one? You know this better than I do. Exactly. And so, and so where in that kind of trilemma, it sounds like you're saying you're accomplishing all three, but I am curious to get your take on where, what trade-offs are you making? Or, or, have, or are you saying that you're, yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And, um, and I think there's the, the trilemma is the trilemma and I have another trilemma for you, which is, let me see how it is. Um, uh, let's see. Accurate, insightful trilemmas. Pick any two. Okay. So trilemmas are oversimplifications. They're typically not accurate or typically they're not insightful or else they're not trilemmas. So, uh, so this trilemma that you mentioned was one that was, uh, that I think, uh, either Vitalik or Vlad proposed. Um, there are other trilemmas, you know, it's like, you know, it's kind of fashionable to come up with these in, in uh, distributed systems. They appeal to the masses, but trilemmas are inherently, uh, inherently oversimplifications. And this particular one has no science whatsoever behind it. It just kind of feels right to a bunch of people. So, um, here is the thing. I can come up with trilemmas for shovels, right? And so you can make the shovel's head larger, the capacity increases, but then the force is higher on you. So then you're making a trade-off. And so, you know, and then so for, for years and years, I can make you think that shovels cannot be bigger. Making the shovel, shovel head larger, increasing the capacity of a shovel will necessarily mean that you're trading something off, that you need to have bigger arms or whatnot. But then comes somebody with a steam shovel. And then it's a different ball game. There's still a set of trilemmas. There's, or whatever. There's still a set of trade-offs associated with the new technology. But the new tech is so different from the old tech that, uh, that you've shifted the paradigm. So within the confines of a proof of work system, then you have a certain set of, uh, certain set of trade-offs, right? So for proof of work, there's energy in that trilemma. Within the confines of a proof of uh, stake uh, system that's using old school consensus technologies, then the trilemma you mentioned makes sense. If you're using classical consensus, if you are using, let's say, tendermint underneath you, or if you're using signature accrual, like Ethereum 2 is using signature accrual, if you're using one of these technologies, then yes, those, those, that, that little triangle that you mentioned applies to you. And then if someone comes along and says, look, this is not how we do consensus anymore. These are old school. This is 1990s. They call, they want their consensus protocol back. And instead we are, we end up doing consensus in a very different manner with Avalanche. It's much more gossip based and it's, it's much less uh, all to all messaging based. So once you go into that new paradigm, the consensus is different. The, uh, the, the trade-offs are different. And, uh, and so, I think typically when people ask me, you know, what are the, the trade-offs in Avalanche? What they really want to know is what's the weakest spot in the system? I will say upfront, and I've said this for many years now, the, the weakest part of Avalanche is the fact that it's so new and it introduces so much new technology. So that's the one thing that, that really is different from us. Everybody else is repurposing building blocks from 1990s. And here we are with a very different infrastructure, very different way of doing consensus. So I cautioned everybody about the newness of what we have been building. We're now two years in, the code has simmered a little bit. I am, I am less concerned about how it is now than I was when we first initially launched it. Uh, but, uh, but that would be the, the biggest concern that I would have as someone stepping into this. This thing has been vetted less than, let's say, Bitcoin. Bitcoin's less been than the effect. Yeah. 
I'm curious if you can expand just briefly on the consensus um, engine that you guys are using. You, you hinted at gossip-based versus messaging-based, which most other chains um, are using. C- can you just explain that for, for our listeners um, at sure. a high level? Absolutely. So uh, typical consensus protocols, one, ones we call classical consensus protocols, as well as uh, the ones that are designed specifically for blockchains, are the ones that are, that are based on signature accrual. The protocols at the heart of Ethereum too. Um, these old style protocols all work on the same basis. They have a set of voters that we call validators. And then there's a vote collection phase where every validator collects votes from his peers. That's really at the root of this. Think of it kind of like the US Senate passing a resolution. So somebody proposes a resolution and if there is enough signatures on the resolution, it's enacted into law. And every senator is tasked with ensuring that there are enough signatures uh, for him or her to, 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 to treat this as the next law of the land. So those protocols then require every node to collect some data, some information from every other node. And that process is necessarily quadratic. It's N squared. A hundred people each have to collect signatures from 99 others. And that's a hundred times a hundred. So hundred times a hundred is about 10,000 messages flying around or 10,000 bits. Uh, but if you try to scale this up to millions of participants, you know, million times a million is rather, rather large. And uh, it becomes really infeasible to, to run those protocols at those levels of decentralization. That's why, you know, the best of these protocols is limited to very small numbers of validators. So uh, in comes Avalanche and it uses an entirely different technique for achieving consensus. And uh, very, very quickly, it works as follows. A senator, if you will. Uh, trying to see if there is enough support behind the bill. They don't go and ask every 99 other senator. They ask their friends who ask their friends who ask their friends. And the same coverage is achieved, but that same coverage is achieved without the same number of messages. So for those who are technical in the audience, there's a probabilistic step involved. So because we are not individually contacting everybody else, we have to rely on that probabilistic coverage. Those probabilities are set that uh, the probability of any kind of a, an unwanted situation happening is one in 20,000 years. It's probabilistic in exactly the same way that Bitcoin is probabilistic. And, uh, but that, that step allows us to greatly simplify the messaging overhead. And maybe, I guess on this probabilistic scenario where things can get dicey is when, if you're to use your analogy, if the friends know that they're being asked the question, I guess you could use a random beacon like IBC is using uh, to, to introduce some randomness and entropy in the system so that people don't anticipate that they're going to be asked because otherwise they can collude, right? If all the friends know that they're going to be asked the question, then there's a risk of collusion and therefore it compromises the integrity, the randomness that is required to reach true consensus, right? Because in, in so how do you actually achieve that? Absolutely, Santiago. So um, the, uh, the, the, the polls that are going out, the polls that any individual node does of the other validators in the system have to be random, have to be unpredictable. And, uh, but, but that randomness does not have to be global. So we don't need a random beacon chain or a random beacon of any sort. You just have to toss a bunch of coins on, in, on your own locally and pick some random set of peers. It's as simple as that. So the security guarantees do not need global, global secure randomness. They're, uh, uh, they're pretty nice. When we think about uh, this construct of an Akimoto consensus, we talk about 
um, I'm, I'm going to introduce certain things that might not be all related, but you, you have this idea of how diverse is the validator set? Um, how distributed, decentralized are, are the, there's a hash rate, like the miners, are they all clustered in a particular geography? You know, And so uh, talk to us a little bit about the, the validator set in Avalanche you, you, and, and how, because I would assume that that would need to continue, it's fairly early. And it would need to continue to scale and grow in size so that you can achieve this true randomness, probabilistic randomness, right? We, we would like to achieve. So the randomness is local, as I mentioned. Um, the more nodes you add is, is, is strictly good for decentralization. And we would very much like to have a very diverse validator set, just like every other chain ought to. So you don't want a common failure to take out large portions of your validators and disable your network. So um, today, the Avalanche chain boasts of one of the largest sets of validators that are involved in every single decision. So uh, we have about, I think we have every continent except Antarctica covered in our, um, you know, we don't have a node in Antarctica yet. If anyone's listening to this and you have a node in Antarctica, we'd love to talk to you and uh, we'd love to help you uh, set up an Avalanche node. Uh, but we're, we are distributed across the globe um, the uh, number of actual true validators is, is on the physically different validate, physically distinct validators is on the order of 1700 or so uh, across the globe. And um, uh, so, you know, I think uh, the, the speed of the system, despite the fact that so many nodes are involved in every decision, is unprecedented. It's about, as I mentioned, about a second to finality. So contrast this with many, many minutes to finality for Ethereum 2, many, many minutes to finality for any of the layer 2s. This thing is truly blazingly fast and decentralized. And we could have actually millions of validators. So if there were the number was a thousandfold higher, it would, it would mean very little from a performance perspective for this particular protocol because it's so fast. And that number has been growing. If you ask just like three or four months ago, it was probably 11, 1200. So it's been growing. I like hearing both you guys talk about Avalanche because you are um, you are highly convicted that uh, you that you have uh, the, the right <laughs> that you are going down the right path here. Um, and Emma, and I, I think that's pretty obvious by your tweets as well. Uh, but there have to be some things that you both have learned from looking at other networks, right? Um, oh, and yeah. so, like like one thing that comes to mind maybe oh, yeah. is, is, is staking, right? Like I remember oh. you used to have to stake. I think it was two thousand Avalanche to validate a block. And I mm -hmm. think you kind of criticize ETH's model, but now you're moving more towards maybe the, that, the, the ETH model. So I'm just curious, like maybe John on the biz dev side and growth side and Emin more on the technical side, like what have you learned from other, from other networks? I will be the very first person to say that, that uh, I stole prolifically from every single chain that came before us. So from Bitcoin, I learned quite a, quite a lot of things to, first of all, never compromise decentralization. If you're going to do that, you know, it's just you're an agent of evil. You're trying to essentially subvert everything we stand for. So that's rule number one. Rule number two, uh, Bitcoin does certain things incredibly well. And um, so one of those is asset transfers. So the Avalanche virtual machine actually has built-in built in, built in, uh, uh, built ways of, uh, of building, of supporting assets. Assets with a finite issuance, assets with uh, a, a multi-sig issuance, et cetera, different kinds of assets. But you don't need to, for example, audit a contract to figure out what an asset does. 
The AVM supports it in exactly the same way the Bitcoin layer provides you with, uh, with properties of Bitcoin that you don't have to audit. Um, from Ethereum, of course, we learned <laughs> exactly how important the EVM is for, for application developers. And uh, uh, we, of course, took the flexibility of a Turing complete uh, scripting language. And in fact, we took EVM itself. Um, from from Waves, you know, Waves was a system that did proof of proof of stake earlier than many others. They were using one of my protocols that I developed when I was a professor. From Waves, we took a bunch of ideas about uh, supporting asset different asset types as well. So um, I'm going to stop there. There are many other technical ideas at the lowest levels that uh, that we took from other other chains. Uh, so um, you know, lots and lots of kudos. Like we rise on the shoulders of other people who came before us. So I think we, what we try to do is provide the best of, of all blockchain science under one cover. John, do you want to take over on that? Yeah, I do. It's not just, um, you know, I'm sure people are building upon what we've learned from others and continue to try to improve. And that's what technology is all about. Um, I think there's not just like ingenuity at the core engineering level, but the way Gunn has set up the architecture is also brilliant from what he's learned collectively, not just on the blockchain, from technology in general. I mean, when I think of the XCP chain um, that you talked about earlier, Yano, it's it's actually very uh, brilliant in the sense that you're segmenting operational risk. Each one of those things are doing specific functions so that if something goes down, it doesn't completely stall the entire engine. And it's almost like taking a page out of risk management and how to do that. So um, it's not just the actual learnings, but it's also the thought that's to make the learning improve improve the end result going forward. Uh, I want to go back to something that you, Emin, said um, as your opening kind of statement, which is uh, this idea of being truly decentralized. Um, perhaps a lot of the listeners now, uh, you know, last year, Solana was in the limelight in many ways. Now, not so much. Um, I'm curious how you would compare yourself to a, a blockchain like Solana and and if you're seeing a lot of activity poured over from Solana into Avalanche, just given everything that's going on. Yeah, good question. So Anatoly has done a fantastic job of engineering a fast, single chain, single purpose system. That's what Solana is. It's it's custom built for a, for a small set of use cases, but it's designed so well, it's engineered incredibly well for those use cases. Now, what are those use cases? They tend to be around, um, around, uh, they, for example, as you, as you might know, if you're a Solana, actual deep Solana user, that transactions are limited in size because if you made them really big, arbitrarily big, for example, like, you know, Ethereum and others try to do, then suddenly your, your packets, packet size gets bigger. All, all of a sudden, the types of things you have to do become much more complicated. And Solana gets its speed from cutting those corners. And it's got this super well engineered vehicle. Uh, for supporting a single chain uh, kind of a system with with some but not unlimited flexibility. So that's how I would characterize Solana, and uh, they built a fantastic uh, fantastic community. And what we're seeing now is a bunch of crossover from people who realize that the the sort of the you know what was going on behind the scenes with FTX and Solana. I think there was it's pretty clear by now that that uh, that there was some manipulation going on there. Um, so as those people look for other venues, Avalanche um, is is very appealing to them. And and so I would say the difference between us and Solana is this: we are theoretically on a different foundation. 
we're not getting our speed by virtue of having, you know, eked out every single little component from our implementation. We're getting our speed from a different algorithm entirely. So uh, we still have ahead of us, and that's, that's what keeps me up at night, and that's what keeps me going every day. We still have ahead of us a lot of engineering challenges. We can get another 10x just by engineering alone from, uh, from, our, from our current implementation. But fundamentally, we're fast because we use a different engine. So think of Solana as the best of V8s, and think of us as coming in with a jet engine. But early jet engines are, you know, they're not usable on the roads and so forth. Like they're, they're, not, they're not all that great. You, they still need to be engineered for, for other cases. So, so that's, I think, the big difference between us. And there's a lot of crossover people coming to, to Avalanche from Solana now. Yeah, I, I guess if you could just succinctly kind of like describe what that secret sauce is. I mean, you talk about kind of this step function improvement and the way you reach consensus um, that makes this a jet engine versus everyone else is kind of operating in, in a different kind of constraints. Um, what was that breakthrough for you guys? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of more technical work ahead, which I would love to get into. But before we go there, I'm just kind of curious, what what is that? like step function improvement. Uh, I want to make sure that that's clear. Sure. Um, so I spoke a little bit about the consensus protocol and how it's different. So Solana is a signature accrual algorithm, just like Ethereum too. Solana is, has this, this design where they're collecting signatures. Every single validator is trying to collect signatures from every other, other validator. Now, Anatoly talks a lot about, you know, making all to all communication go fast. But he's at the end of the day doing all to all communication. And those nodes have to each be very, very fast and very beefy for that system to work well in, in perpetuity. So, and in fact, that's why they were having all those issues. Um, in fact, that's half the reason why they were having all those issues. The other half the reason they were having issues is they, they ended up building a whole lot of, um, a whole lot of bad feedback loops, if you will, where if something, something went wrong, then things cascaded. Case in point. If a Solana node was slow, then all of the transactions that got sent to him for creating the next block would have to then be sent to the next node. And if the system is under a lot of load, this creates a bad, bad situation where if one guy is slow, then suddenly the next guy gets twice the load that he normally would get. And then that cascades from then on. And if that's kind of continuing, then these guys suddenly have an enormous load bubble that, uh, that, that slows down their production and suddenly, you know, you end up having a Solana outage, et cetera. So, uh, so there are a couple of things that are going on here. First of all, do not build systems with bad feedback loops. Second, um, make sure that the algorithms that you use underneath the covers are, uh, fast. And as I mentioned, I'm not going to re-describe the consensus protocol, but if you want that step function difference, Solana is trying to collect messages from a certain set of nodes. Whereas we are not, we, we are also, sorry, we are trying to collect, um, collect responses from a very small number of nodes. They're collecting cryptographically signed signatures, which means milliseconds of signing overhead. Whereas we're collecting uh, secure bits over a secure pre, pre-authorized line. So our process is a lot faster compared to what they have to do. And uh, so these all add in. Um, but uh, as I said, there's, there's a lot of stuff that they're also doing that we're not doing. So they do a couple of things with their database management that we are not doing. They they end up uh, they end up dividing their data into a hot and a cold section, and they uh, the archival data they're they're essentially as far as I understand it, it there's no way to get to it. 
Like you can't actually validate their chain starting from Genesis all the way to the end because the archival data is, is not, at least API-wise, not accessible. Uh, whereas we are sort of more like a traditional blockchain. Everything is there. Anyone can authenticate from, from Genesis Vertex on down to today. Well, I'll add to that. I mean, depending on when you ask that question in 2020, 2021, you know, the applications and the developers love the fact that there was instant finality, um, love the fact that there was a great bridge, very seamless, the best bridge in the system that can move assets from Ethereum back and forth easily. They love the fact that, frankly, um, from a community perspective, the DeFi ecosystem grew tremendously and there was network effects there. I think if you ask that question um, back then and today, a th another variable is that the chain never goes down. It's always been on. Um, and that's very valuable to developers who want to have assurance that the thing is turned on. Who wants to go watch a, a movie in a movie theater where it goes dark or the film gets cut off every five minutes? Um, and today, if you ask, they love the subnet uh, architecture, the custom ability that they can have, their own execution environment. And I think if you ask this question in six months from now, when we go from five to whatever, 50 or 100 new subnets, they're going to love the network effects from all these subnets working together as well. Yeah, I wanted to get there from your perspective, John. And um, I mean, feel free to comment here as well in terms of the security guarantees that you're getting. I mean, obviously, this gossip kind of type of when you talk about this new algorithm, if you will, um, it's it's largely untested and in cryptography, you know, you have this kind of construct that is called Lindy effect. Um, what kind of guarantees are you giving and assurances are, are you giving and, and how is that resonating with the people that are moving over to Avalanche? Where when they ask you as part of the criteria, as part of an RFP, say, how are you, you know, how secure are you relative to Ethereum or to Bitcoin? and or other chains and i'm curious what the response is to that great question let me give you uh, some um some sort of uh, vignettes but uh but i haven't done this exercise in a while now i'm just realizing so i might my numbers might be out of date um so bitcoin security is provided by proof of work miners and the capital that has gone into the uh the, uh, the mining uh, set of miners, the proof of work miners that are computing the, the Bitcoin blockchain is about one to 2% of Bitcoin's market cap. So if we do that math, let's just say, let's do it with a, is it half a trillion now or is it one trillion? You do it with a trillion, you know, you get a number. Uh, so 1% is about what, 10 billion. So it's, that's sort of the, that's sort of what you would need. I, I think you would need a third of that, about $3 billion. Now, $3.3 billion would be about, about what you might need to start launching meaningful attacks on B Bitcoin. So that's the threshold for attack there. Um, Ethereum, I haven't checked the numbers on how much is staked in ETH2, um, but um, it has a unique security model. It is, it's actually, uh, it's not 33% of the staked amount because in each round, they talk to a smaller set of nodes. You could actually compromise uh, Ethereum if you get lucky and end up compromising the slot. So, uh, so the numbers there are different, and I haven't done that exercise. Uh, but I will give you the numbers for us. Uh, we are about a uh, about let's say about four to five billion uh, market cap coin with about 70 percent, eighty percent of um, of the the coin staked for security and all of those coins are involved in every decision. 
So uh, our security budget is about uh, 3.5 B or so, just back of the envelope calculation on the fly during this talk. I haven't checked any of these numbers. So um, my math might be wrong, but I think that's, that's our security budget. So for any given level, I think a proof of stake protocol has a great advantage compared to proof of work coins because you don't have to buy miners. Uh, and, and, and so the security budget tends to be a lot larger. That's, we have that going for us. And, um, and, uh, for Ethereum, because they do committee subselection, you can, uh, an, an, an attacker, you know, suppose you have 10% of, of the staked ETH and you want to launch an attack. Well, you'd have the 10%. Because of the committee subselection, you can get, you can get subsampled and you might end up having far more of a representation in a slot than 10%. So the threshold required to attack Ethereum 2 is a lot lower than, than the traditional percentages we're used to, like 33%. So, um, so there is that compared to us and, and Ethereum 2 as well. And the same goes for, the well, same does not go for Tendermint. Tendermint is different. Tendermint just cannot scale to large numbers of participants. It's just a few hundred, uh, and it provides 33% for the few hundred that managed to get in there. So that's, that's my quick technical answer off the top of my head without checking numbers. John, I want to throw it over to you because, Evan, we've been uh, hammering you with some technical questions here. John, on the, on the BD side of things, there's this uh, kind of behind-the-scenes like BD battle that's going on. And... Um, as an outsider looking in, it seems like there are a couple of folks who've been doing pretty well and some folks who maybe haven't stepped up their BD game uh, at a time when it's needed. I'm just curious, like, how do you approach BD, especially given the, like, when as an outsider looking in, I see someone who seems to be having a lot of success, which is Polygon, right? Like, winning a lot of deals with kind of the the Web2 brands, like the, the Disneys and the Metas of the world. Then there's some folks who've really focused, like, inside of crypto, like, trying to nail getting, you know, crypto-native games onto their L1. I'm just curious, like, what is your overarching approach. How do you win that that uh, that BD war? So there's two different sides. One is the Web2 over, and that includes financial services firms. And then there is the crypto native. We've done quite well on both sides. Overarching um, thesis in BD has been that we're very relationship oriented. Um, a lot of these other chains actually um, throw money at certain problems in order to solve it and to get relationships. What we've done is always led with technology and and have a deeper longer relationship um what we'll do is we'll work with them we'll have you know we'll, we'll get them plugged into our community help them market we will help them with our uh plug in if they're growing a product you know we'll have our engineering and devwell teams work with them as well and we'll introduce them to other bd partners and when they need to raise money we help them with uh, venture capitalists so we really work with them so that means it's a it's a longer time process and and but it's a deeper one and we do it very tact um uh, strategically and tactically at the same time in other words we'll go through certain areas you know we'll, we should talk a little bit about institutional uh DeFi that we will be launching in the future but also we had you know a great playground in regular DeFi to learn before we go into institutional DeFi. so it's very thoughtful at the strategic level as well as at the tactical level there are two deals i'd actually love for you to walk us through the kind of nitty-gritty gritty details if you're open to it one is shopify and one is kkr right so kkr one of the largest asset managers in the world i think it's some, somewhere around half a trillion aum uh they they worked with avalanche to uh and i think it was securitized to tokenize 
some amount of one of their funds. So I'd love to hear the details of that deal. And then there's something that you guys just did with Shopify. I haven't dug into it too deep recently, but also would love to hear the details of that. Could you could you walk us through kind of the, the behind the scenes, maybe the, the story that hasn't been shared with both of those? I'll, I'll share as much as I'm allowed to share, especially with the, uh, <laughs> right. the um, financial services firm. So on the KKR, you're right. It was tokenizing a sliver of one of their funds. And there's really two goals for these large asset managers. One is to get operational efficiency. I mean, we can all understand how the blockchain as a um, backbone to the to the underlying rails of all this can be more efficient than the traditional way of doing things. In fact, you know, KKR has two floors worth of people, uh, literally two floors worth of people doing KYC, AML, and a lot of back office paperwork. The long-term goal for them is to really learn how blockchain can help create more efficiency and make things happen smoother and faster and more uh, effectively. Um, and then the other reason why a lot of these um, asset managers are doing this is because there's different universes that they can tap into for distribution in the long run. A lot of these asset managers are very well covered in terms of the endowments, the pension funds, the sovereign wealth funds. But there is a large growing group of call it qualified purchasers as well as accredited purchasers. So, you know, some of these people have put together numbers close to 70 trillion of accredited and qualified that someday may want to go direct and um, buy some of these funds, you know, in a different way than they currently do, paying fee on top of fee through intermediate distributors. So, that is the trend I think you're going to see a lot more going forward. More asset managers trying to A, learn how to create backend operational efficiency and B, figure out what that distribution ultimately can be in the long run as these products become more common. Um, it's no different from the, you know, I remember my parents telling me in the 1970s, you bought mutual funds instead of buying stocks because you thought it was too complicated. The cost was too high and you didn't know if this was a good company to buy or not over time. You know, you said, well, I, you know, you went to the Peter Lynch school of investing, buy what you buy, literally buy stocks that you buy personally in consumer products. And you know, the, the, the product is good or the service is good. That will happen over time with funds and private securities as well through blockchain technology and the tokenization of assets on the Shopify deal. We're very excited about that. That's the very beginning of a longer, longer relationship. Um, right now they're doing NFTs, uh, uh, through, a, another uh, payment mechanism on Avalanche, but that is just the very beginning of what we're working on. In fact, I have calls set up with them to further that partnership going forward. Um, and John, maybe I'm, I'm curious in the vein of, you know, you talk about how Avalanche is more kind of makes it more comfortable from a regulatory perspective. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, um, I'm sure you have a ton of conversations with other folks like KKR that have said, you know what, I'm not ready. I don't want to do it just yet. Can you maybe quantify the impact that FTX and other collapses of last year and in recent blockchain history have dissuaded um, and kind of set back your BD efforts? From an institutional perspective, listen, um, I think it's obvious, you know, with what's happening, there's a lack of trust in the space. So that's paused a lot of these deals to move forward. I think, you know, I don't have to tell you that it's pretty obvious, but it's a pause. Um, activity is still happening. I mean, even after KKR, Apollo is raising a tokenized fund. Uh, JP Morgan 
um, as continuing to do JP Morgan Guardian as well as a JP Morgan coin. We are still talking to a ton of asset um, um, managers as well as other traditional financial players. Maybe it's a little slower now, but it's still continuing. So sure, it's, you know, the, it's a speed bump, I would say is the right way to characterize it, but we have to work through it. How real is it this time? Because of course there's us that have been around for a while that have seen this movie in, in 2017, where it became fashionable to use the word blockchain in public, you know, 10 Ks to, you know, say, Hey, we're being relevant. Um, where it sounds like you're getting traction a lot on the financial front. Are there other verticals where this is real and, you know, so, what can we expect? So uh, the first part of that question. Yeah. I, I think go there it, this, this is a lot different than the other cycles. I think with this, um, FTX situation, every traditional financial services firm now is waiting for the rules to play itself out. And because they don't want to do anything that may be deemed, you know, um, not compliant just because the rules have not been properly laid down. But we're seeing in Europe with Mika, and I think Mika has done a really good job and it's at the final um, edges of it where they actually classify different assets into different buckets. And I think that's key. We need to do that in the US. So in a weird way, in the medium term, sure, this is FTX thing has hurt the short term, but in the medium term, if we can have more certainty in regulation and rules, it will actually accelerate um, in the medium term because banks and financial services firms will have more clarity. Um, in terms of other areas and part of the reason why we're working with Shopify, there's no doubt that consumer areas where there's less regulation and things that could be tokenized um, faster. So there, there's reasons to do things over there as well. But the, the real issue is when it's easier, um, there's less value created by just tokenizing things left and right, especially like an NFT. But when you can actually rewire the financial services engines that's being created, that has been created over a hundred years, there is a lot of value that you can create. So John, um, maybe we should add to this the fact that every time you and I talk to a, a Wall Street firm, they already understand the concept of a digital asset. They already understand the concept of issuing tokens. So that is qualitatively different, Santiago, as I'm sure you'll remember from 2017. So different. So every time I talk to them, I feel great. And um, it's not just the financial people. They tend to be the savviest ones, of course. But it's also the gaming companies are now coming on board. And uh, you know, we have a bunch of games already launched on us uh, that are doing more transactions per second. They were doing more transactions per second than Ethereum. And um, uh, so they're very popular. They're already gaining traction. And uh, there are many other games to come. I think that segment is, is another one. The NFT space is strong, as you know. Um, it's kind of inward oriented. You know, it's the people who do that are people who are already savvy with blockchains. So, um, uh, so I'm not sure if it's expanding as, but it's a different kind of crowd too. Uh, so, but in any case, that's an exciting crowd uh, and an exciting use case. And there are many other real world assets that want to come on board, that want to be digitized, that people have uh, in, in their possession. And in the post pandemic new economic order, um, I think there's going to be more, more of an impetus to get those digitized, to get them offered to, to the globe with great reach, with all of the benefits of having, having a, a blockchain underneath. So we're, we're exploring these. It's such an exciting time, if you ask me. I think we can all agree that there's been a collective effort of the industry to educate a, more, a lot of people. Um, so fast forward a year or two from now, you have hundreds of subnets. You know, um, I think you recently announced this uh, warp messaging 
system feature, if you will, this sort of communication protocol between subnets. Um, I'm curious, uh, there's a, when we think about scalability, at least in the construct of Ethereum and other chains, we, we talk about composability breaking a lot. Um, can you talk about the, this communication between subnets, the efficiencies that you might have, and, and in the context of composability? Absolutely. So uh, what Warp does is it allows any two subnets to send messages or to do, do invocations across subnet boundaries. So I might have a US-based asset and, um, uh, you know, I might have a subnet for it and I don't know, maybe it's real estate, etc. You might have another asset that's, let's say, uh, EU-based. You have a different set of validators. They conform to EU law, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Now we can trade those two things for each other using Warp. Behind the scenes, Warp uses BLS signatures, which are aggregate signatures. They're very, very efficient um, in, in constructing a compact, uh, compact signature that authorizes the operation to happen on the destination side. So um, it's uh, that, that the problem, as you mentioned, is as you go to different different divisions, if you will, different, this is definitely true for in the case of layer twos. When you have different layer twos, liquidity in one layer two is unavailable and inaccessible to another one. Well, with warp, you end up having a subnet that's able to essentially invoke messages across a subnet boundary. It's not like invoking a message in the same subnet in the sense that it's not synchronous. I can't say, go do this immediately in one transaction. Uh, the pattern that's used for communication is asynchronous. So I have to say, hey, please do this. And then it happens on the other side and the response comes back. So there's a slight bit of a, of a change, but that is the, the change, the decoupling that allows these subnets to operate without having to couple with each other, without having to slow each other down. So um, so that in turn allows us to get enormous speed ups uh, by by creating this structure. So, uh, so that's sort of what Warp does. Warp is really great because it's a very lightweight solution. Um, some of the messaging solutions elsewhere is not this lightweight. And part of the reason is because, you know, you're staking on the P chain and therefore the registry is there and it makes it a lot easier than some other, you know, uh, messaging solutions where you have to go through a, a more rigorous process. Can I, what does this actually enable though that you're not able to do now? Does, so does it just, my understanding and tell me if I'm wrong here, it allows applications to publish information to the to the C chain once, and then that kind of makes it immediately verifiable on any subnet on the Avalanche network. So for example, you could have like a chain link feed on the C chain that can get pushed down downstream to to any subnet on the network. So you you it's kind of published once, like distribute everywhere. Is that the major application or am I am I totally missing something? No, no, no that's one of the cases, but let me try to distill it for for the audience. So if you have a single chain system, Everybody who uses that chain has to be coupled together. And if you are using it for your app, then you drive the fees up and everybody else now has to pay high fees. So there's no isolation. And if Santiago has enormous load so that the system is slowing down, then the performance of the system will drop down as well. And that, of course, creates, again, lack of performance isolation. So fee isolation isn't there with a single chain. Performance isolation isn't there. When you have a subnet, then you can have a particular DAP, a DEX, for example, on its own chain. And the fees it pays for its, its performance, its activity, are decoupled from the main one. 
So if you end up having, uh, you know, you can have a subnet dedicated to a DEX. So Trader Joe or Dexalot have their own, can have their own subnets so that the people can, you know, whoever wants to use them can pay tiny, tiny fees. Um, if you want to have a subnet dedicated to Chainlink feeds, well, then that can proceed at very, very low fees and people can import information from those subnets. And, um, and so whoever, if there's a game that says that requires a lot of transactions, the, the game load is borne by the nodes that, that operate the game and that load does not impact the rest of the, the C chain, for example. So those are the use cases, a couple of use cases. There are many others, especially for enterprises. Uh, there's a thread on Twitter. I got to give this person a shout out, King, Kings Lee. Um, I don't know, some, some account, but it was like all the bull arguments basically for Avalanche. It was like Avalanche scales through L1s. They support any VM. They support uh, their inter interop uh, Avalanche is interoperable. Avalanche is decentralized. Avalanche is performant. Avalanche is cheap. Avalanche is reliable. Great thread. I'm sure you guys would like it. Now, they also had some bear, bear arguments at the end, though. They said some of the main, uh, one of the main obstacles right now is governance, which is um, they said a couple of the main drawbacks were a wallet, but you guys solved that with core. Uh, communication, which you like, you know, for subnets, kind of like IBC, but you just solved that with, with this AWM thing that you're launching. It sounds like one of the main drawbacks now for people in the community is on-chain governance. So would love to hear what your plans are for on-chain governance this year. So uh, when we launched uh, Avalanche, one of the things we wanted to support um, was, was governance. And uh, uh, shortly after launching Avalanche, we ended up implementing on-chain governance, but at the moment, um, you know, we're, we are a little unclear about the regulatory status of doing governance on chain. And there are also some technical concerns about doing governance on chain. So we are, we would never do anything that would jeopardize the status of Avalanche as a commodity. It's a commodity. It's for, it's used for gas and so forth. Um, so, uh, so that's what's keeping on chain governance from being, being, uh, rolled out in the code, say tomorrow. And um, so there are some regulatory concerns we need to to wait wait through. Um, in general, I'm a fan of on-chain governance, but uh, but there are technical arguments against it, as you know. And um, and often, uh, I mean, you know, it's just you know, we can go down to the, the details if you want to. Uh, there's a debate to be had there, uh, but uh, uh, but yes, we do not have on-chain governance right now, and that's something we initially wanted to have. Um, we I would love to have a conversation around it. But I think all of these are premature unless we have some guidance from regulators, because they seem they seem to to not like any idea of any coin that allows the coins to act kind of like the way stocks act. People will hear me and they will they will think I'm defending this position. I think this is a crazy position. It's bogus and uh, and it's it's entirely wrong at its root. But I'm, it's not my argument. I'm just worried about that. And, and there are regulators who think like this, and that's what's giving me pause. So the purpose, I guess, uh, we've seen a whole set of governance tokens that purport to just be, you know, voting, uh, mapping voting, whether economic shares, like you have ten, a certain amount of tokens, they correspond to a certain amount of voting power, uh, but don't, don't promise anything other than just being purely governance-based. Uh, I'm curious why you think that by introducing governance into the Avalanche like system, it would, you know, cause some sort of tension issues from a regulatory perspective. I mean, the purpose of Avalanche now is to secure the chain, right? You, you know, you governance has historically for other projects, at least hasn't been an issue. So, you know, I'm curious 
why you think that is and when other projects haven't perhaps found that to be problematic? Uh, so once again, I am not saying any of these things. I am channeling other people who are saying these things and I'm concerned about what they, that these people are saying. There are regulators out there who are concerned that, that coins that allow the holder to vote make those coins act a lot like a stock certificate. Remember how if you own a stock of a company, you can vote in its decisions. And therefore, they make they they these people believe that those coins are closer to to securities than others, and so that's a concern. And uh, um, you know, as I fully agree with you, it makes absolutely no sense. I think that's where you're coming from um, when you say that other coins have done this. Yes, they have, but they haven't been given the green light. And um, right, I'm I'm not endorsing that. I'm just right. just you know objectively. Yeah. Stating what I'm seeing, right? It it did happen. You were right, um, but but none of them. There are no great, you know, clear guidelines here, and uh, we're all yeah. trying to anticipate what might or might not happen. And um, um, so, I would not want to do something with Avalanche that would jeopardize Avalanche's uh, commodity position. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we haven't turned that that feature on. That's really my main worry. Otherwise, we yeah. would have that discussion in the community and turn it on. Right. I guess uh, one of the as, as an investor and part of the community, one of the things that I look for the most is uh, how healthy is the developer ecosystem? How easy is it for new developers to come learn the language program and, and start building applications? Can you comment on that? Sure. Let, yeah. me, uh, let me give people a very quick rundown of our community, like just a couple of vignettes again. So um, we, have a, we have a thriving community. We did exactly the right thing by picking the EVM as a foundational uh, foundational thing to, to build on. Uh, so if you're familiar with the EVM, you have a home at Avalanche. Uh, most of us are, 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 um, are, are also Ethereum people or were Ethereum people at some point. And, um, so, so that's one. So there are many, 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 uh, developers from, with that background. Um, whatever you learned in terms of programming solidity, immediately entirely useful. We are, uh, entirely compatible with EVM bytecode. Um, so second, the, uh, the fact that Avalanche has these VMs that are pluggable means that you can build your own VM. We support a Rust-based VM uh, SDK. So if you're a Rust programmer, you can build on top of us. You can build your own VM in, in Rust. Um, if you are a Go programmer, the code base is written in Go. So there are a bunch of people with those backgrounds who are building on top of us. Um, when it comes to high-level dApps, all of the blue-chip dApps that you are familiar with, uh, maybe say for Uniswap. Uniswap, I don't think, has come on to us yet. But um, all of the others, Aave and others, of course, are all on Avalanche. So you will find a bunch of ready building blocks. There's everything you might imagine, flash loans, et cetera. There are lots and lots of uh, dApps that support these. So I think it's a, it's a very strong community. Qualitatively speaking, uh, the community is, our community is younger. So the Ethereum folks have had a lot of time to simmer and we've attracted, I think, the next wave of bright young minds who really like the tech. And uh, so they're not as crypto savvy and uh, it is what it is. Um, and I think they're, they're just sort of now finding their, uh, their, uh, their footing with the incredibly powerful infrastructure underneath them. Um, a lot of the innovation in DeFi has been happening on Avalanche. When Ethereum fees were insanely high, Avalanche was ticking along at like 50 cents a transaction or $2 a transaction at its peak. 
at 250, I was getting hate messages. And then we did a bunch of optimizations that allowed everybody to, uh, you know, that allowed the system to run a little faster and got the, that got the, the pay, the fees down again. So overall, um, we've had a lot of people come on to us. Oh, if you are looking for stable swaps and so forth, the most efficient are found on Avalanche. I think even better than the best on Ethereum. So take a look at the community. It's, you know, whatever you might have in mind. Lots and lots of gamers are coming to us. There are lots of games that are okay. building their own subnets. John, am I missing? So it's not just Apecoin. I would, you know, for the newer uh, people listening in, I would invite them to come into the Discord channels. I would invite them to go to the Avalanche uh, Developer Conference in May. And they, you know, Gun's absolutely right, but they should find out for themselves. Every time, you know, we've worked with a team, um, allowing them to see it firsthand is really, really eye-opening for them. Yeah, I was in, uh, for context, I was in the Barcelona conference. Was that your first one uh, last year? Mm-hmm. And I was, right. uh, was pretty impressed with uh, the, the cohort, yeah. and it sounded like a pretty diverse set of teams. It was yeah. great. Yeah, thank you for coming by. It was such a blast. I had so much fun. Myself. It was. This year, it's going to be May 3rd through the 5th. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, guys, I want to start to wind us down here and, and kind of, take this podcast home. I have a couple of maybe broader, zooming out from Avalanche, like broader, maybe macro views of crypto type of questions I'd love to get your takes on. Um, maybe for both of you, I'm really curious to hear your take. There's there's all these new new L1s launching, like the Aptos, Aptoses and Sui's of the world. There's still Solana, you know, ETH, there's these L2s, there's Cosmos, obviously. Um, I'm just, is, how much room do you guys think there is for for more L1s and like a in a big multi-chain future with several different L1s, or do you think that the future in the next couple of years we're going to see liquidity concentrate on just maybe one or two or maybe even three chains? So, so let's go back and talk about how we define a blockchain earlier. Um, you know, you have to execute, you have to settle consensus, and have data availability. So, a lot of those L1s you just mentioned, they're really not a blockchain, a fully functional blockchain. So, we need to separate the conversation slightly. For people who really want a fully functional blockchain, you have a different construct in the, in the subnet. Now, um, for us to see the, uh, call it the crypto ecosystem develop with all of these other rollups or whatever you want to call it, you know, reality is the more we can get involved, the better it is for the whole space. Right now, there's still very few people in crypto, developers in crypto relative to developers in Web2. It's just a small fraction. I think uh, whatever gateway they use to come in through Avalanche, through others, it's okay because ultimately, you know, we've seen a lot of developers start elsewhere, but ultimately also land on Avalanche when they want to try out and go multi-chain. So I'm going to be a little bit more pointed. Let me just say this. <laughs> you don't the say world- the world, <laughs> the world does not need another virtual machine, right? It's another general purpose virtual machine. The EVM, you know, is it the ultimate? No. Would I do it differently? There are many micro decisions taken in it that I wouldn't have taken them that way. I would have, for example, come up with a native, native size for operations. That's a lot less than 256 bits, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of things that I would have done that I would, that would have led to a far more efficient virtual machine, but none of those matter. So uh, the Aptoses, the Sui's of the world, I don't think uh, they really represent any kind of a material increase in our capabilities. Whatever they can do, we can already do with the EVM. So um, if, uh, you know, the, I could see the case for a Tezos-like approach because a, a, a virtual machine that allows you to reason about applications would be an interesting one. But, but these new things are not those. And uh, what I see happening here is that people saw 
that we were at a technological impasse, that L1s garnered a lot of attention, and they want to repeat the experience with just a narrative. And just because you have a new system, you know, a new virtual machine doesn't mean you have a, a new business case, a new reason for adoption. So the world wasn't clamoring for the move virtual machine. And so, and there are no move users right now. So I think this is the, that set of people are going to find that, uh, that, uh, that it's not going to pan out. But, you know, who am I to, to make guesses? So the second thing I should mention is, um, is, uh, that as we move forward, the, 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 the technological barriers, the, the people who actually know how to overcome technological barriers are going to be the ones who win. And the systems that can absorb growth are going to be those that win. There won't be a single chain that emerges as the leader. There will be a set. It won't be a big set, though. It's not going to be 15, 20, set of 15 or 20. There will be new L1 releases. All of these coin distribution events, they're kind of like a self-perpetuating cycle. And there will always be people who are trying to get in early in the hope that they can get out, etc. But a lot of these end up with, uh, with people holding empty bags at the very end of the day. So I don't really see the need for all of these new L1s that, that people come in. I hear this every now and then. So I want the L1 premium. I want to collect the L1 premium. Well, the L1 premium is there only for people who bring something new to the table. Avalanche did that. And if you're coming in now in 2023 and you're recycling old protocols and you're just adding, you know, it's kind of like I invented a new hat by putting a feather on an old hat. Okay, well, it's not, it's novel, it's a different hat, but it's still a damn hat at the end of the day. You did not really change anything fundamental. And, and there's a fellow here with an umbrella. He brought something entirely new to the scene. So, um, so I, I think these, these plays are kind of asinine. I'm not a big, big believer in this, like more waves of L1s to come. And I think people will catch on to the fact that every L2 is a, is a cannibalistic thing. It cannibalizes the system it's built on. And uh, these L2s are not necessarily good for the L1s that they're built on. They're all each unique and individual and separate, and they divide the user base. They fracture. So um, so I think in response to these, there's going to be at least the savvy users will want to look for a, a solution that is uh, more of a large framework that allows everybody to coexist and to take advantage of already built uh, Lego pieces that exist already. Nice. I'll give you guys 30 seconds each for this last final question of the podcast. What are uh, one or two things that you two are most excited about for Avalanche that we should be aware of coming up this year? John, maybe you want to kick it off and Evan, you can- I'm super excited about the subnet growth on Avalanche and the, the great pipeline that exists there and also some of the institutional stuff and tokenizing real world assets. Well, now you stole everything I was going to say. So I'm excited about those as well. Subnet growth is fantastic. Tokenizing new assets is fantastic. The thing I'm super excited about this year is the outreach we're going to be doing to the community. I think our community is supremely nice, has been incredibly supportive, incredibly sweet. Um, and, um, and they've brought us to where we are today. I'm going to be working extra hard to uh, bring opportunities in the blockchain space to them, whether it's in the form of educational stuff or, or career development stuff, connecting people stuff. But, uh, but in all of, all of those areas, I want the best builders, uh, to, to be, to continue to build on Avalanche, the most innovative technological platform in blockchains. Goon. That's great. John, this is great, man. Both, both you guys pre appreciate you guys, uh, for coming on. This is, uh, yeah, really interesting uh, deep dive into Avalanche. So th thank you guys for, uh, for all your time. Thank you. A lot of fun.
Thank you, guys. Thank you both. Thank you so much.